Hello everybody, welcome to the Bullseye Podcast by Aldebaran Financial, your personal financial guides. My name is Peter Raber and I will be your guide today on the 18th of July. Being over halfway through the year really is kind of amazing. This year has flown by. Um, keeping in the, the theme of last week, I'm going to try to keep the, the format somewhat similar to how we start off. So a little bit of story time, a little bit of market review, a tip, a client issue, and maybe a little bit of stuff out of uh, some investing books. So bear with me and I may change that format up a little bit as we go but that that's the plan anyway I thought it'd be interesting just for you all to know anyway where my background comes from Um, as I said last week I am my father's son I I was born into this business he started um, back on Wall Street and has been in business since you know the mid 60s in financial business and I always knew that that was what I wanted to be I guess a little bit about a uh, kid wanting to do what his dad does Um, but I can remember vividly uh, my dad working with people out of our home before he had his own location and I remember going into his banks when he worked in banks and, and annoying all the secretaries and doing, you know, different things. And my mom would do bookkeeping work for clients, and I'd go annoy those people, too. I was a little tag-along office brat. And then when the business started, we went full steam into this as a family. You know, I always hung around the office, and I knew that's what I was going to do. We worked with a broker out of West Virginia. Um, At the time, it was uh, Prudential Securities, which was then bought out by Wachovia and on down the line, it's now Wells Fargo. But we had a lot of our accounts at one point with Prudential, and I would go up during the summers of high school, and I would intern for the primary broker that we worked with up there, and um, I got to see kind of their side of how it would work and then so I saw it on our side of dealing with clients directly and then you know we would always call up our orders to you know this brokerage and then I would see how that would go so I'd spend a couple weeks each year and I'd live actually at the house of uh, the broker up there who was friends with my dad and uh, had a good time and we'd go play golf in the afternoons and and whatnot and I worked with a couple of different brokers up there so I got to see it on both sides, and it's amazing how the business has changed since then. But So I knew all the way through high school that's what I wanted to do. So I went to college. I went to college at Emory and Henry University up in, or Emory and Henry College, not university, up in Emory, Virginia, and got my undergrad in economics. And I went to Emory and Henry because they had a good business program and, and also because I could play baseball there. It was a Division three school. I'm a left-handed pitcher. Um, so I knew I could, could go up there and play. And so it was kind of the best of both worlds. It was real close to the house. My dad given me a 150-mile radius in which I could go to college. So that fit in perfectly. So I got an econ degree up there. And uh, I had a couple of primary professors that that really kind of shaped my economic thinking that came out of there. And then uh, 
one of the things though that I was always very cognitive of was how different things are when you're actually working on something than they are in the theoretical side of the books and econ has a very heavy reliance on holding all things constant and if there's anything that's true in this business it's that nothing is ever held constant so it was a, an interesting dichotomy but I graduated um, in 2003 from Emory and Henry I graduated on a Friday and I started working full-time I'd worked every summer with with dad in the business but I started working full-time on the following Monday May 19th 2003 so 15 plus years ago, you know, in a couple months uh, of full-time work. So I've seen a, a decent number of cycles um, through here, but that's, that's where I came from. And I remember coming into the business and dad said, well, I'll ask you in a year, you know, do you still want to work here? Is this the type of business that you want to be in? And uh, I, I knew the answer on the first day, so I didn't really need to wait the year, but we had that conversation a year later and since then that's what what I've done and I remember the very first day I, I worked here um, we were probably managing I'd have to go back and look it up but maybe a hundred million dollars about that time so now we're up in the 350 range but I remember placing a bond trade for two million dollars and just being blown away that that people that I knew had that amount of money but that they were letting um, you know us make that decision for me I, I always remember feeling a great sense of responsibility and that's really what our business is about is the trust that our clients have um, in us and the responsibility owed back to them not just legally because we're a fiduciary but there's a responsibility between you know, someone that you're working with and doing the right thing for and to do everything you can. And that weighed very heavily on me. And I've always, you know, remembered that first trade that I placed, um, just the gravity of it. And maybe if I had placed a trade for, you know, a $1,000 of, you know, stock XYZ or whatever it was, that wouldn't have been the case. But uh, I really um, took a lot out of that. So that's kind of where I've come from. I went on and got my MBA from ETSU, East Tennessee State University. I did that at night while working here, and then uh, have gotten you know a couple of certification things like the Series 65 exam and things like that. So that's been my background, and that's probably way more than you wanted to know about me, you know. But professionally, that's that's where I come from, and you know, so. We'll, We'll move on from there, but that's that's who I am. Last week we kind of got who Al Debron was. Today, me and in the future, we'll we'll move on to the rest of the team. Now this is a story all about how my life got flipped, turned upside down, and I'd like to take a minute just sit right there. I'll tell you how I became the prince of a town called Bel Air. So transitioning into what the market has done this last week, since Wednesday we've seen a positive market. Pretty much every indice is higher. The Dow, the NASDAQ, the S&P, all higher. The European markets and the um, Asian markets moved higher, so those are, are all up. The 10-year Treasury is just a little bit higher. It went from 285 to 287. Um, 
things connected to interest rates being higher have not done as well so still in the growth names so things like utilities and consumer staples not nearly as positive as the others but still still moving higher if we were to go back and kind of look on a day-by-day -day basis of what the, the big stories were the big thing coming out of I guess Wednesday into Thursday was the president going to Britain so meeting with Prime Minister May meeting with the Queen you also had mixed in there um, the Papa John scandal with the founder using inappropriate language on a conference call and it continues to amaze me that people in positions like his are unaware of their surroundings um, you know you tell your kids all the time or at least I tell my kids all the time you, know, you have to think before you speak <laughs> and, you know you, your kids will just say anything and uh, that's almost what this feels like it's just I didn't think about it before I spoke why would that be bad so um, he's out and Papa John's has actually rallied since his ousting if you were to look at uh, over the last couple of days in, in Papa John's we saw them down at, at 51 and then they've jumped up here to almost 53 and a half then moving throughout the rest of the week you had a lot of international stories back and forth with the trade with China um, and seeing where that's all going and then you had the sit down with President Trump and President Putin out of Russia and the massive amount of news coverage that went along with that um, you also had slightly before the weekend I didn't mention on the podcast last time around but you had the nomination for the US Supreme Court so Brett Kavanaugh um, and that's gonna be a, an interesting confirmation fight in the Senate but definitely pushing the Supreme Court more into the conservative side rather than being a 4-4 split with Justice Kennedy in the middle this will be more traditional of a 5-4 split uh, and we'll see if Justice Roberts becomes that more moderate vote but we just don't know um, and then you had the NATO summit in there talking about um, commitment to defense um, and that's you know not been put in the news quite as much with everything happening with UK and, and uh, President Putin. You saw oil back underneath $70 a barrel this week with Saudi Arabia said to have offered extra crude to its customers. And um, those were kind of some of the, the big things. You, oh, you had Amazon Prime Day in here and the, it's gonna be the best Prime Day ever, but it's gonna be somewhat marred by the fact that their site was down for a period of time in there. And so those have been the big headlines out of the the week and we're, we're gonna see where we go you know for the rest of the week but that's that's been the the major topics lots of interesting things but I don't know if there's anything that was enough to change a portfolio allocation out of it um, the the big individual stock news was Netflix probably that probably had the biggest headlines and it tumbled 14% after hours on 
that would have been on Monday because they reported on Monday because they missed new subscriber growth. The company disclosed, um, I think it was 670,000 domestic streaming additions versus a $1.2 million consensus guidance. And they blamed the miss on faulty internal forecasting, not business reasons. Like Now we know. And knowing is half the battle. So looking at this week's kind of tip, as it were, it's more of this week's topic that I kind of wanted to talk about that I feel is really important, especially on the front end of investing. And in set, you know, building off the theme of setting yourself up for success last week, one thing that I talk about with a lot of clients is what is our risk tolerance and what is our risk capacity. And those are two different topics. Risk capacity is how much risk we can take monetarily. And it does not have to do with maybe the... Um, psychological side quite as much the uh, your financial situation determines your risk capacity to a great extent so if someone like Warren Buffett has a tremendous risk capacity because of the sheer massive amount of wealth or Jeff Bezos or Bill Gates you know they can afford to take on an investment that has a huge amount of risk it might be a small percentage of their overall investments. Risk tolerance is more how would you feel given a certain market situation. So one of the questions we ask a lot of clients is if the market were to be down 20% over the next year, how would you feel? And a good way to make that real for people is to say well if you had a hundred thousand dollars and it was fully invested in the equity market if one year from now it was worth eighty thousand dollars with the potential to grow back and potentially ten years down the road still be right where we want to be is that something that you would be able to tolerate if you're in a 50-50 portfolio, stocks to bonds, let's say those bonds just were flat for ease of math, they earned zero, and your stocks were down 20%, your overall portfolio would only be down 10%. So that's where we start to get into how do we build a portfolio. And there's all sorts of questionnaires online, different companies do it. We try to work through it with people. Some of my favorite ones... Um, there's a University of Missouri questionnaire out there that in trying to get towards what your risk tolerance should be um, asks really more real questions that I kind of like. It's, it's fun. So like in general, would your best friend describe you as a risk taker, a real gambler willing to take risks? cautious risk avoidance so trying to put yourself in the shoes of someone else looking at you um, 
you know, there's a good question on there from if you were on a TV game show and you could choose the following, what would you take? A thousand dollars in cash, a fifty percent chance at winning five thousand, a twenty-five thousand percent or twenty-five percent chance at winning ten thousand, or a five percent chance at winning a hundred thousand. Which would you take? Um, and then there's more kind of real questions of. You finish saving for a once-in-a-lifetime vacation, and three weeks before your plan to leave, you lose your job. What would you do? Would you cancel the vacation? Would you take a more modest vacation? Go with scheduled reasoning that you need time to prepare for a job search, or extend the vacation because it's the last time you're ever going to get to <laughs> go on first class. Um, there's all those type of things to try to get a mindset, but really it's just a conversation. And a lot of it is understanding what your financial situation is, what your expected expenses are. Do you have a kid to put through college? Do you have a mortgage to pay off? Are you supporting an elderly parent? Um, what other assets do you have? Are you in line to be the um, beneficiary of a massive inheritance? Um, those, so you go through all of those different things. And you put them together and you come into a risk profile. And a lot of times that boils down into a bucket of are you a conservative, are you a moderate, or are you an aggressive investor? And there was a study done by Charles Schwab that had these numbers. And it was talking about a conservative portfolio. And I'll throw numbers out there, but it really is important to get the exact numbers right. But a conservative portfolio of like 30% stocks, 50% bonds, and 20% cash. A moderate portfolio, 60% stocks, 30% bonds, 10% cash. Or an aggressive portfolio of 80% stocks, 15% bonds, and 5% cash. And I've heard that also explained of what type car do we want to get into? Do we want to get into a car that's driving super fast? Do we want to get one that's trying to go the speed limit? Or do we want one that's going under the speed limit but we know we're going to get there? And the study talked about if you had put $10,000 into each of those portfolios in 1970 and allowed that to go through 2014. So it's all old numbers, nothing recent. But $10,000 from... 1970 to 2014, $10,000 in that conservative portfolio would have grown to 300 and roughly $90,000. The moderate portfolio would have grown to $677,000 and the aggressive $892,000. And that's with that 2007 to 2008 9 market dip built into there along with the 2001 you know tech bubble black friday a lot of big market corrections are in that and the annualized return on each of those portfolios is would seem close so if you're picking them out of a hat you might say well goodness you know there's not that much difference but the annual return on a conservative portfolio was 8.1 percent moderate 9.4 aggressive 10 massive differences in real dollar terms of what that meant but there was two other things in the study that I think are important in determining you know where you're at and one was the volatility so they measure that with standard deviation and on a conservative it was 9.1 so that means the annual 
turn was 8.1 annualized each year with the ability to be basically nine points above that or nine below. So negative one to positive 17 in most scenarios. Not all, but most. That volatility jumps to 15 and a half for a moderate and 20 and a half for aggressive. And then if you were to look at the maximum loss, so um, the biggest drop in performance in the conservative portfolio. So this was a 30% stock, 50% bonds, and 20% cash. It still had a maximum loss of 14%. There was a period of time when it was dropped 14. Moderate was down 32. Aggressive was down 44. Now part of the takeaway there is if you have a long time period to invest, you can afford those big fluctuations. If you don't have a long period of time to invest, you, you really don't. But that's a big part of you know determining how each one of those feels to you. And I've sat across from couples who the husband was like, I want to be as aggressive as possible. And I've had, you know, the in the same conversation, the wife say, Well, no, you know, I don't want to do that. And then you try to find the balance for for a group. I've had it flip side. It is not necessarily gender specific. Um, sometimes, you know, the the wife is the risk taker sometimes in you know situation you never know but you you learn who it is and then you try balance it um, but that's super important is determining your risk profile because that's going to be what determines what type portfolio makes sense for you sometimes you want to go where everybody knows your name So moving on to that and keeping with my, my plan here, I wanted to go over something that came up here at the office that I found interesting. So if you have an interesting situation that you want me to talk about, feel free to send it in and I'll, I'll go over that. But we've got a client who came to us and said, I'm about to buy a house and I need to take a significant portion of my investments and convert them to cash to pay for this house. And they wanted to know what positions to sell. And there's a lot of different philosophies that go into what do you sell? Do you sell your losers? You know, things that haven't done well that maybe you can take a tax loss on that's beneficial for you. And uh, you can take a, a deduction on your taxes or you can offset a capital gain that you're about to take so that you're not paying taxes on a gain. And this was coming out of a taxable account, so we didn't need to worry about an IRA distribution. But there's a little bit of a philosophy there to go over as well on do you keep the same blend or do you try to pick, you know, you could equally sell across every position in your account and keep the same allocation and there's people who would do that and depending upon the situation I sometimes would recommend that but most of the time I try to be a little bit more surgical with it um, is there something that I'm just not as confident in over the next period of time is there something that maybe from a valuation standpoint has run a little bit more than something else maybe that's something that would take off the table 
we have certain organizations that we work with and you know they'll say well i can't take any losses right now because it will affect my accounting even within the nonprofit world so you try to balance that out but generally what i try to do is keep the big allocation roughly the same so if you were to 70 30 portfolio 70 percent stocks 30 percent bonds and that's very simplified but i try to keep you roughly there take it out of equal portions unless i was thinking that this is a decent time to make a tactical shift so i may not keep the same allocation to aggressive stocks or you know technology stocks or banking stocks but i try to keep the big allocation and then it gets down into balancing off tax losses trying to be as tax neutral as possible because no one wants to pay extra taxes just because of the liquidation and then saying okay I like that position I'm going to allow it to run there there's systematic investing that rebalances on a schedule and that's definitely not me um, I think there's value to it in that it's a system but I, I think it has a tendency I like to let my winners run that's a little bit me um, I'll take a little bit off the table as we go maybe but not just because it happens to be on the end of the quarter and it's time to rebalance to me, that's it's a little too arbitrary. Um, you know, right now, taking anything off the table in Facebook, Google, Amazon, you know, the big Fang stocks, you know, they're just continuing to run. And when you project out over the next 18, 24 months, so two years, three years, five years, those are companies that I want to be in. Maybe it doesn't make quite as much sense. So I try to be very tactical, very surgical in, in what we cut out of a portfolio. Now, it's a different sell situation than we're just trying to you know, buy or sell a stock. When do we have a price target and all that? But if we're just trying to liquidate a large portion of a portfolio, those are the type of decisions that we make. And a lot of it has to do with customer interaction and going back and forth and saying, hey, this is what I would do. Here's another option. This is another way to look at it. And then making a decision together. So that's kind of the, the, the issue of the week, as it were. Butterfly in the sky. I can go twice as high. Take a look. It's in a book. A reading rainbow. went long on a lot of those segments so far and I went really in depth on the intelligent investor by Ben Graham last week so I'm not going to spend a lot of time on it this week but there is one section in the first chapter we did the preface and introduction last week and there's a really important part in the first chapter of the intelligent investor and it talks about investment versus speculation the way Ben Graham defines it, and he talks about defining even back in his first book, Security Analysis, as an investment operation is one which upon analysis promises safety of principle and adequate return. Operations not meeting these requirements are speculative. And 
I think that distinction is huge. Investments should be things that we can hold for a period of time and be sure that our principal is safe and are going to be rewarded for owning it. And a lot of times it gets confused, especially in today's day and age where we've got all sorts of prognosticators on TV talking about what's going to happen tomorrow, what's going to happen with this earnings report, what's going to happen um, over the course even of the next couple of months. And those are all short-term speculative prognostications. And no one knows. No one has a crystal ball. We've never seen someone be able to come out and hit it right every single time on things like that. There's no system that works for that. There's systems that work over short periods of time, and then they don't. Things that are great at identifying periods of time, but they don't work across all. And those are all speculations. And I could have a really good feeling about this industry or that industry and what's going to do over the next six months. But that's pure speculation based upon education and analysis, but it does not provide us a surety and a safety of principle to go along with a return. So when we look at an investment, it needs to be something that we have the ability to own for a good period of time. And if it doesn't, we either need to classify it as speculation and put it in the speculation portion of our portfolio, or we need to not be buying it. So a lot of people will, will call up and they'll ask, hey, I just heard about this stock from this friend. You know, I'd like to get into it because I think it's really hot. And a good example would be something like Bitcoin. And I know that's not a stock, but I think it fits that mold. And we talked to a lot of people who were interested in Bitcoin when it was down in the you know 3,000 range. And then we saw it skyrocket up into the you know $25,000 range. And then it's dropped way back down. And it's been all over the, the board. And I'm really confident that blockchain technology will be a thing going forward but bitcoin wasn't an investment it was a speculation it was something that had some you know special news around it but then all of a sudden you know as the market developed and we saw one of the big things that turned bitcoin around was you got the ability to um short it or sell it um, without owning it and that turned everything around and we we even saw the federal reserve chair today come out and say bitcoin's not a real currency and it's risky for unsophisticated investors that's the type of thing that we, we just need to be aware of and there's nothing wrong with having speculation in your portfolio I think speculation is where some of our best gains come from. But our investments, our long-term drive our return, drive our portfolio performance positions need to come from investments, things that we're confident in over the long term. And once you make a purchase, unless 
the fundamental story changes, there really shouldn't be a need to sell it. Um, you know, so earnings might miss by a little bit and it dips down and you might be able to get some more at a better price or, or whatever it is. But that's, you know, if we're buying a stock, individual stock or a ETF that holds a certain market, we should be able to hold that for a long period of time because we want to be investors. We don't want to be speculators. Um, speculation is just like going to Las Vegas, playing Texas Hold'em and, and going all in on, you know, an ace jack because somebody else might have king ace and you just, you know, you, you don't know. And so that's, I would warn you against speculation. Um, not that's evil, but you gotta know what it is. It goes back into that risk tolerance conversation that we have, and you know, let's let's be investors. That sounds like old Morse code. What does it say? Danger, Will Robinson. Danger. Danger indeed. Anything that I've said today, please discuss it with your own financial and legal professionals. It is purely meant for educational purposes. I hope you found some value in it, and if anybody has any questions, please don't hesitate to reach out. You can email us at aldebron at aldebronfinancial.com, and you can get in touch with us um, through our website, which is aldebronfinancial.com. Love to hear from you, and until next week, please stand clear of the doors. Please stand clear of the doors. Por favor, manténganse alejado de las puertas.